Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you know, were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants, working together. You are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are going to camp out in this chapter from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, over the next couple of weeks. Um, today, we'll spend a little time sort of setting the stage. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians 3, and then we'll jump to the Gospel of Luke for the remainder of our time. But if you're with us throughout January, you know that we spent the month of January talking about our purpose as a church. Not, of course, with the intent of rehearsing how special we are. Our goal in that was to simply recognize that, yes, we do believe God is using us. We do believe that God has a purpose for this faith community, but not because we are special, not because we have the answers to the world's problems. That notion that we are special, that we are right, that God is on our side, I think is one of the things that has led to today's increased tribalism. This is obviously said tongue-in-cheek. I don't think many would actually put it in these words, but it's the thought that God is with us. God is for us because God is like us, right? God must be Protestant because I'm Protestant. Or God must be Pentecostal or God must be reformed because that's where I am on this spectrum. Whatever theological distinctive you might hold or or God must be Republican. God must be Democrat because that's what I am. And God must have the same opinions as me because these opinions I hold are right. The view that we are right about everything, that, that we are special, that God is on our side, I think that becomes especially tempting in moments when God maybe has used us. Or moments when we do believe that we are right about an issue or, or things are going really well for us. That, that must be a sign that we are favored by God in some way. And then it doesn't take much imagination to see how that could lead to something like today's cancel culture. Right? Which I believe to be incompatible with the kingdom. And obviously... 
in the first century, they didn't use that language of canceling. But this issue is not new at all. This was a problem in the first century that Paul combats to a degree, even here in 1 Corinthians 3, our scripture reading. You probably picked up on some of that tribalism that was going on at the church in Corinth as we read through that passage. And for Christians, this is a big deal. First of all, because we desire unity. Not always agreement, but we do hope to be unified. And if our disagreements, which are inevitable, if they turn to accusation and hate, to dismissal or simple ambivalence of the other, unity is always going to be impossible. Secondly, those outside of the fold are seeing how our relationships function, and they will draw a lot of conclusions about our faith based on that alone. So this is a big deal. I want to take the next two weeks to sort of explore this idea. Again, we'll begin in 1 Corinthians 3, and then we'll jump to the Gospel of Luke. So a bit of context for this passage in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul planted churches all over the Mediterranean world, throughout Asia Minor, everywhere he went, he seems to have shared Christ and gathered new believers into communities. Well, one of the churches he planted was in the city of Corinth. Shortly after he departs Corinth, though, somebody else arrives on the scene, a man we're introduced to here in 1 Corinthians 3, a man named Apollos, who was a highly educated man from Alexandria, He had spent some time in Ephesus receiving more in-depth instruction in the gospel of Christ from the church there before he makes his way on to Corinth. Apollos was smart. He was educated. He was well-spoken. And it appears as though some people in Corinth, quite, quite frankly, prefer Apollos in style, maybe even in content, to Paul, which is fine. That's pretty normal. We all have our unique tastes. We, we have different styles that we are drawn to and different personalities, and those differences in tastes are not necessarily a negative thing, but they can quickly turn into destructive habits, and that seems to be, at least in part, what's going on in Corinth. So at some point, Paul, who is at this point in Ephesus, receives a message from the church in Corinth that he had planted, that things were beginning to unravel. The church was still there. There there wasn't an outright abandonment of the faith, but the quarrels, the infighting, the division, the jealousy, and the arrogance, if it went unchecked, would one day undo the community. So Paul has to address this. So keep in mind, when Paul planted this church in Corinth, he, he responded, um, or he respected and understood the fact that they were just at the point of being able to grasp some of the fundamental elements of the gospel. And so by his own admission, he gave them a spiritual diet, so to speak, of milk rather than solid food. Not that they were 
ignorant, not that they were incapable of understanding bigger, weighty matters related to the faith, but he wanted to ensure that they had a grasp of the basics of the gospel first. So he leaves, and Apollos comes along, and it seems pretty abruptly maybe switches their diet from that milk to solid food with a weighty, maybe a philosophical approach to the faith, and seems that it felt pretty good for the folks in Corinth. It felt good to stretch the mind a bit and to think about difficult things in fresh ways, and maybe it even made them feel a little bit better than those who were unable to exercise their mental faculties in that way, or maybe had no desire to approach the faith in that way led to a little bit of arrogance. We, we must be better than those who cannot think or will not think in this way, like Paul. I mean, that guy's a dunce. He's certainly no Apollos. I'm with Apollos. You can continue to follow Paul. That's fine. If you want to be a barbarian, go ahead and follow Paul. So Paul takes this opportunity to respond to this situation. We read this in verse 3. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. He went on in verse 6 to say, look, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. We, we did nothing. We, we are nothing. Only God is worthy of the kind of devotion you are showing. And so this is the tragedy, at least a part of the tragedy of the situation in Corinth. And it may very well be a potential tragedy for us to guard against as well. At the very moment the Corinthians are assured of their super knowledge, of their preeminence, of their superiority and their wisdom, in that moment they have failed in the most basic way. They believe, they have this assumption that their newfound solid food is going to give them the key maybe to some advanced spirituality or a pathway into the premier religious tribe, but that belief and that attitude proves that they have not grasped some of the most basic aspects of the gospel. Their jealousy, their quarreling, their moving into very narrowly defined groups where everybody is just like them and thinks just like them, their arrogance reveals their immaturity and their utter lack of true spirituality. You see, self-righteousness, pride, and their counterpart, fear, these are attributes that the Corinthians have mastered, and it showed the elementary understanding they had of Christ's love and mercy. And those characteristics will always it will always lead to divisions that will destroy the body and make unity impossible. 
pride and fear move us away from love for one another more swiftly and assuredly maybe than anything else. So this is what Paul is combating. We're going to dive into that chapter in a deeper way next week, but for now I want to shift our attention to the Gospel of Luke to sort of develop this broader concept that we are going to be building on next week. Because we actually find pushback against that elitism and those feelings of superiority that we might be tempted to assume. We find pushback against that throughout our scriptures. We could think of a story in the Gospels like the Good Samaritan. We could think of several stories tucked away throughout our Old Testament, even some that Jesus uses during his ministry, like the ones we find in Luke chapter 4. Do you remember that story? Jesus is depicted as attending the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath, and while he's there, he stands up and begins reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, what we know as chapter 61 of Isaiah, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news for the poor, freedom for the imprisoned, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor. He stops reading rolls the scroll up, hands it back to the attendant over the the service and begins to sit down. And with the eyes of the crowd fixed on him, he says, this has all been fulfilled today. In your hearing, in and through me, these promises are fulfilled. Well, we continue reading chapter 4, verse 24, where it says this, Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It seems like the story took a pretty abrupt abrupt turn there seems pretty extreme, right? What's going on? What would cause this sort of overreaction? At least it seems to be an overreaction to me. What would cause that? I mean, in verse 23, after Jesus has said that these scriptures from Isaiah about all of the benefits that are coming to the house of Israel, that is all fulfilled today in your hearing. When he says that, the crowd speaks well of him. We're told that they were amazed at his gracious words. And then a few short sentences later, they are furious and want to throw him off a cliff. It escalated pretty quickly. Amazed in one moment, Jesus refers to a couple of stories from their sacred scriptures. 
and they erupt in anger. What's going on? Well, let's consider briefly these two stories that Jesus refers to. The first one is from 1 Kings chapter 17. This is in the middle of that life-threatening drought the prophet Elijah had forecasted during that showdown with the prophets of Baal. Elijah says to King Ahab, look, for the next three and a half years, there's going to be a drought. There's not going to be any rain. There won't even be dew on the ground. Three and a half years, no rain, no dew. Well, Elijah is himself impacted by this drought as well. And so he lives by this little brook that provided a little bit of water. And maybe you remember that raven miraculously visits him, bringing meat and bread to sustain him. But Eventually, even that little brook that had provided water for Elijah, even that dries up, and Elijah's left in this perilous position, physically speaking. So God instructs him to go up north to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, north of Jerusalem on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and God tells him there's going to be a widow there who will be ready to feed you and save your life. So he listens. He makes the journey north. And outside of the gate of the city, he finds a woman gathering sticks. And he requests some water and a morsel of bread. And she says, oh, look, I'm sorry. I wish I could help you out. But this is literally all I have. And I need it for myself and for my child. We are about to die. Elijah says, well, that sounds like a serious situation. But if you will just do this favor for me. Your flour and your jar of oil, they won't run out until this drought ends. And against all odds, the the woman believes him, prepares something for him to eat, and sure enough, her flour and her jar of oil miraculously do not run out until the drought ends. The story continues. Sometime later, this woman's son became ill, and eventually he died, and Elijah is identifying with this woman in her distress and crying out to God, questioning God, why have you allowed this to happen to this woman who you sent me to in order to save my life? And Elijah feels compelled to pray for the boy. and Life is restored to his lifeless body. It's a remarkable story. Pretty amazing. This is one of the stories Jesus refers to. The second story, from 2 Kings chapter 5, Jesus says many in Israel had leprosy during the time of Elisha, but Naaman is the only one who was healed. This was in the 9th century B.C. in Israel's northern neighbor, Syria, was a superpower that always posed a great military threat to the much smaller and weaker nation of Israel. And the leader, one of the generals of the Syrian army, was a man by the name of Naaman. Naaman was strong, powerful. He's sort of your prototypical military man, but he was also a leper. He had a skin condition that disfigured his physical appearance and caused great suffering. And one day, as Naaman's physical illness is being discussed, one of the The servant girls overhears the conversation. This was a young Israelite servant girl who had been taken into captivity. And 
She hears the conversation and says, sort of offhandedly, well, if only we could get him to this prophet of my people. I know that this prophet could heal him. And Naaman sort of stops in his tracks. Are you kidding? You think there's a prophet from your people that could heal me and this is the first I'm hearing about it? What are we doing? Let's go. And so Naaman, together with his entourage, traveled down to visit Elisha, who instructs him. He says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Naaman is beside himself. I traveled all this way, and that's your suggestion, to go dip in this filthy river, and then I will be healed. But he's sort of out of options. He doesn't have anything to do, and so he relents. He dips in the river seven times, and his skin condition is completely healed. Another quite remarkable story. Both of those stories are remarkable. What's the big deal? Jesus brings those two stories up, and the crowd wants to throw him off a cliff. Well, the text in 1 Kings explains that Elijah goes up to Zarephath in Sidon. This was a hotbed for Baal worship. This widow that Elijah turns to for help in time of trouble, she was a Gentile and quite possibly a Baal worshiper. And yet Elijah requests help from her. She extends that life-saving aid, and later Elijah raises her son, raises this Gentile's son from death. The second story in 2 Kings, it's a Syrian military general. This is an enemy. This is a man who was a representative of what the Syrians had done and what they could do again in the future to the Israelites. And Jesus says there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, yet Elijah was sent to this Gentile in a foreign land. There were many lepers in Israel in Elisha's day, and yet this Syrian, Naaman, this enemy of the people of God, he is the one who is healed. One of the things Jesus seems to be doing, and I think this is connected to where we're going to be headed next week, but one of the things Jesus seems to be doing is completely dismantling the expectations of the crowd in Nazareth. Because surely they believe that the blessings that Isaiah 61 points to are intended for Israel and Israel alone. And the judgment that Isaiah refers to is for their enemies. That judgment must be for their enemies. It's not for us. We are the recipients of the blessing. But Jesus turns this all on its head. It says, your, your own scriptures show that this is close to the heart of God, that God's truth, God's reign, God's love and mercy extend far beyond your group. His love undoes any sense of elitism, superiority, any sense of arrogance that you may have, spiritual or otherwise. The crowd in Nazareth wants to see miracles for 
his own people. Like, like the stories they've heard of what he had done in Galilee. And instead, they find Jesus saying something that seems to be the exact opposite of what they want. The message is that he cares for the widow in Sidon. A widow outside of their group. He cares for the military man in Syria. This has always been close to the heart of God. And lest we be too hard on the crowd in Nazareth, the question I would like us to begin considering today and for the next couple of weeks is how often are we like this? Where we expect judgment for our enemies rather than mercy. How often do we want good things for our people, for those who are like us, for those who align with us culturally or politically or economically or theologically. And I want God's blessings for those people because they're like me and I'm right about everything. So, of course, God should be blessing me and those who are like me. You can forget about the rest of those fools. I mean, those fools are following Paul. Are you kidding? I follow Apollos. I'm much more enlightened than that. Do we forget that God's mercy and reign extends through the whole world and he desires all to come under his lordship and receive his mercy? So I think one of the the questions that's important for us to consider that I want to begin asking in preparation for next week is this. How do we avoid this type of tribalism? How do we avoid that type of tribalism when we may very well have a tribe? We may have a group that we are a part of. We are a part of a flock. This is a part of the nature of the church. We believe it to be true of this community gathered around Christ. We are a distinct people in Jesus Christ, and we believe we have a distinct purpose. But how can we have a vision of distinction, of being distinct while remaining open to those outside of our group? Because we can't allow our distinct identity to cause us to think that we are special that we are more loved by God, that we are better than somebody outside of my group. We can't allow our distinctions to cause us to become arrogant or to despise or look down on somebody else. So I think the first step is to simply be honest about it. What, what is my tribe? And this can occur within the Christian faith. In fact, it does all of the time, as it did in Paul's day, what he's combating in 1 Corinthians 3. So for us, is it a denomination or a particular tradition or a particular approach to being the church? We've got it figured out. And if you disagree, then you're probably not really a part of the same faith we are a part of, because we've got the final answer on this issue. I follow Apollos. You can keep following Paul if you want to, if you're content in your ignorance. If you were more enlightened, maybe we could have fellowship. But you're not, so I'm going to keep you at a distance. The Christian faith is replete 
examples of this, and I think it's a travesty. Or maybe the tribalism that we're confronted with is not in relation to the Christian church at all. Maybe it is related to politics. I'm on the right or the left. And that's not even enough anymore because each of those sides have splintered into thousands of distinct groups, right? And to be included in any of those groups, you have to put a check by every box. It's impossible to have that nuanced position on any issue or or maybe it's class. I think this is a big one in our world that doesn't receive much pushback at all. Maybe it is urban versus rural or wealth versus poverty. Those distinctions are just sort of accepted. But as the people of God, those are attitudes we must resist. We must take stock of our thought patterns to recognize when we are doing this. How can we love, how can we truly love those who are outside of my group when there are so many differences? And maybe the differences aren't unimportant. Maybe they're significant differences. But we still have this command from Jesus to love. And within the body of Christ, this command to pursue unity, despite our very differing opinions. Alan Jacobs, who's a professor at Baylor, he wrote a book in 2017 called How to Think, and in that he said this. He said, the only real remedy for the dangers of false belonging is the true belonging to, true membership in, a fellowship of people who are not so much like-minded as like-hearted. I think there's maybe something to that for us to consider in this conversation. False belonging says we have to think exactly the same about everything all the time. If there's any dissent, if there's any difference of opinion, if we veer off from one another at all, that bond is broken. And I think this is at the heart of today's polarization in in many ways because the bond of peace, in any notion of unity, is only as deep as our superficial and surface level agreement. True belonging, on the other hand, says we can have some different thoughts. We can have some differing opinions in good faith, but can we be like-hearted enough to remain unified? So again, we are going to continue this conversation next week. This was sort of just a primer to get ready as we dive in deeper into 1 Corinthians 3. But I want to leave us today with this charge. Steve, if you'd come as we prepare for communion, and for the rest of us, if you'd stand as you hear this charge. As we have considered Paul's words at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 3, and as we have looked to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, let us, as the people of God, forsake tribalism, which destroys our ability to love. We forsake it. We resist it. May we be known as a people who pursue true unity with one another, true community with one another based 
in love and the common good. May it be so. We're going to come to the table to celebrate around the body and blood of Christ today. We invite you. We're going to make two aisles down the center, two, two rows down the center aisle. You'll come forward. Somebody will be here with the cup and with the bread, and the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Let me say this prayer for us as we approach the table of our Lord in obedience to him. O God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and us from prejudice to truth, deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. Lord Jesus, you said to your apostles, peace I give to you, my own peace I leave with you. Regard regard not our sins, but the faith of your church, and give to us the peace and unity of that heavenly city, where with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reigned, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?